Hello and welcome to Not So Molly Mormon Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back. This is Sarah. And this is Katie. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Please don't turn it off. We don't always sound like that. That was just me being awkward. <laughs> um, how's it going, Sarah? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, how is it going? It's going well. Um, yeah, yesterday was, I was already told you this, but I'll tell you the rest of you guys who are listening. Yesterday was a really lovely day in Berlin. It was like sunny. So I went out and rode my little bike for the first time since my knee surgery, which I know it doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but you guys, I was like on cloud nine because I, I can use my leg again, my knee. It's good. Uh- so great. Did you say a prayer of gratitude after? <laughs> I did. I like took a little break in the park and was like, dear CJ, thank you so much for giving me access to my knee again and letting me ride a bike. Again, bye. Like, You're welcome, Sarah. This is <laughs> Heavenly Father. <laughs> Everybody, I, uh, I got a new microphone set up and I've been waiting to use that feature this whole time. We've been chatting for like an hour. We recorded a Patreon episode and I wanted to bust out the echo and I busted it out to represent HS. I'm so impressed and surprised, you guys. I had no idea. And that literally <laughs> sounded like Heavenly Father talking to us. So yeah, he blessed you. You were able to ride your bike finally. It's all because of him. <laughs> I cannot wait to listen back to this episode and hear the effect. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, oh, well, that is, like, the cutest thing right now. He's, like, snuggling and has his little arm and paw across my belly. And I am just, like, when he started doing the echo thing, it was really loud. And he, like, jumped up. <laughs> like, what is happening right now? I'm so sorry, kitty. He's <laughs> okay. He's laying back down. He's good. Um, Well, we have a new patron that I want to welcome. Our new patron is Hannah. Welcome, Hannah. And thank you so much for being our patron. Hello, Hannah. Yeah, thank you for joining us on on the dark side. We really appreciate your support. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you guys want more content and to give us a little bit of love, just go over to patreon.com slash not so Molly Mormon and we have a lot of extra stuff over there. We do. Uh, we just recorded a fun episode. Yeah. All right. Um, do you have any other announcements, Sarah, or should we jump into it? No, I am super duper excited for this episode. Katie prepared it and I don't have any idea about it other than it's true crime and you guys know I'm obsessed with true crime. <laughs> yeah, so this is... um. I think it's it's technically more of like a Mormon mystery, but I do believe that true crime is most likely involved. And mm-hmm. I'm so I'm going to tell you what happened from for the best to the best of my ability, you guys. I researched this. I went down the craziest rabbit hole for this, and <laughs> then we can talk about theories about what we think happened. Um, but this is unsolved, so. Oh my we'll God, I just had that image in my head of unsolved <laughs> mysteries, like the host. Yes, so <laughs> I actually I actually came across this on the Disappeared uh, podcast, and it was about a, I think it was maybe a 30 or 45 minute 
episode and I, it was really interesting to me. So I decided to look more into it and oh boy, it was so much deeper than they covered in that episode. So I, I'm just so excited. I hope, you know, just disclaimer, I, I tried my very best to get everything right, but there could be mistakes. I'm not perfect. And also if we talk about theories, it's allegedly like we're not saying that anyone did anything for certain, but um, exactly. we can make, you know, we can have our theories, our allegations. Girl, right? okay. I already know we're going to get some type of comment or <laughs> message that's like, actually, that's not correct. Just listen, guys. I just, just listen to the episode. It's okay. We're not perfect. It's okay. okay. We're not perfect, but I did try my very best. So, okay. We're talking today about a man named Stephen Kosher. Ooh, I've not heard of him. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this until I, I heard that episode either. So I thought it was really interesting. Stephen Kosher was born in 1979 in Amarillo, Texas, one of four children of Rolf and Deanne Kosher. He was raised very devout Mormon. So, of course, he didn't drink coffee, no alcohol, no swearing, no premarital sex. You know the drill. <laughs> Unless I... Docking. I, yeah, I was just going to say uh, maybe unless it's soaking, but, you know, soaking. nope. <laughs> um, he was said to be a very fun and outgoing and positive person. He was active in the Boy Scouts, eventually becoming an Eagle Scout. Yeah, of you do. He was into sports, but more so into art and music. Uh, after graduating from Amarillo High School in 1998, Stephen served an honorable full-time mission in Brazil. Um, Portuguese, yeah, Portuguese speaking, of course. And I thought this was funny because I listened to a few other podcasts. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and I read a ton of articles and like blogs about this. And most of them commented, like they said, so he served a mission in Brazil and he even learned how to speak Portuguese as if it was like, surprising to them and then I remembered that not people don't that aren't Mormon or ex-Mormon they don't really understand that that's part of the mission it's like oh, <laughs> well of course he learned Portuguese like that's what that's what they make you do when you go to a different country you have to learn the language usually. that's right yeah we don't think about that or because yeah we just know that they get sent to the MTC and <laughs> yeah, are, like yeah. immersed in that is intense what they go through to learn intense that. yeah Okay, so after his mission, he attended BYU-Idaho and then later the University of Utah, where he received a bachelor's degree in communications. Oh, so he, he went to your rival, Sarah, the University of Utah, the, the heathen school. I feel like that's where the cool Mormons went. Like, <laughs> they definitely <laughs> did. I was not a cool Mormon. I wish <laughs> I would have went to University of Utah, but you know. <laughs> Um, after college, Stephen interned in the office of the governor of Utah for nine months, and a year and a half later, he went to work for the Davis County Clipper, which is a newspaper in Bountiful, Utah, edited by his father. Hello, friends in Bountiful, Utah. I know we have listeners there. Oh, hello, guys. Hello. hello. In 2007, Stephen began working for the Salt Lake Tribune, KO, um, oh. for their digital advertising division. Oh. He liked the work. Yeah, he liked the work, according to his mother, but not working the overnight shifts. 
the many cold temperatures and bad air quality in Salt Lake City that winter also bothered him. So a year after a year, he decided to leave his job at the Tribune and relocate to St. George, which, um, as many of you might know, it's in the warmer southwestern portion of Utah. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that makes sense. Like, we've we've both lived in that area, Sarah, and we know it gets, like, very cold, and the the air quality is super bad in the winter. But I did find this interesting that it's kind of just, like, not many people that I know of would choose to just move to St. George just because the weather's bad. Like, I don't know. I would think to move to a different city, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. It's St. George. That's also where, like, a lot of the parks and stuff are, right? Oh, right. Yeah, it's near, like, a lot of the uh, national parks. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Stephen, by this time, he was nearing 30 years old, and he was still single, but he was always looking Steven. for love. I know. Because as we know, in the Mormon church, marriage is, like, the top priority. Um, followed by having children, but especially for returned missionaries, you know, you're told even as a missionary, you go home and you need to find a wife immediately and have children. And, you know, he's almost 30. Well, in 2007, he was 28 and still single, which, you know, according to people, his family and stuff, that was pretty hard on him, which, you know, understandable as uh, someone in the world. It makes you feel like something's wrong with you in the Mormon church, so... And especially, yeah. I think, for guys, because it's up to them, you know, like, at least with the women, it's like, well, there's nothing you can do about it because a, a worthy priesthood holder has to choose you. But right. then, like, for the guys, like, well, if you're not married, that shit's on you. Like, Right. And it, it's almost like he did every step right. He, you know, he mm-hmm. was an Eagle Scout. He did the mission. He has his degree, like everything. So it's like, why am I not married? Um. Okay, so when he moved to St. George, Stephen initially worked with another internet advising firm, but that employment ended quickly uh, because by this time it was like 2008 and there was the big recession, as we might remember in 2008, everyone was was losing their jobs. And it was really difficult for him to find a new job after this. It was, the recession was like really devastating to, you know, the whole country, but particularly it hit hard in Washington County where St. George is located. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Stephen eventually was able to find some work handing out flyers for a local window washing company. Um, it didn't provide him with, yeah, it didn't provide him with enough income to meet his expenses. though. So, you know, it was just like a part-time thing. Mm-hmm. But by November 2009, he was several months behind on his rent. Oh, that's so hard. I know. Uh, Greg Webb, who is the singles ward president, claims, <laughs> <laughs> I know the singles ward, really? oh man. So I'm assuming when they say singles ward president, I'm assuming they mean like uh, maybe president, the quorum of the, the, the priest, what is it? The quorum well, leader. Yeah, yeah. So he claims that the local electric um, utility was threatening to shut off Stephen's electricity because he wasn't paying his electric bill either, and he was also behind on car payments. Poor, oh, poor guy. Ouch. Yeah. So like everything really. So 
everything. Um, because of these really, really hard financial times, Stephen was actively seeking another job. He was trying to use connections from his ward, you know, to be like any kind of work I can do. Uh, it seems he was really, really stressed out about money, also the lack of the romantic partner, but his family said that he was optimistic it would change soon enough. Um, the, the place where he lived, where he was renting and behind on his rent, it was a house owned by a man named Brett Bishop, which I thought that was kind of funny because like Bishop. You know, exactly. Wanted. I was just thinking that. Okay. Yeah. What, what if he was a bishop? He'd be Bishop Bishop. <laughs> there has to be a bishop bishop out there somewhere oh i'm sure there is um okay so uh, brett bishop didn't live at this house but he was just the landlord but i met i only mentioned this because he comes up in a theory later so remember that name okay um steven did have a roommate that was non-lds and <laughs> yeah they were like cordial to each other but they didn't particularly get along because of their differing values. Um, oh. <laughs> I mean, Stephen had plenty of Mormon friends in his ward, but he didn't necessarily get along with his roommate. Like they didn't hang out. He just, they stayed in their separate rooms, but it was really funny on um one of the podcast episodes I was listening to about this. They described the disappeared episode, like TV episode about this. And <laughs> I guess in the episode, it shows how they're like different and it shows Steven's roommate cracking a beer and like <laughs> kind of looking over at Steven being like, hey, hey, I have a beer. And then it just shows Steven pouring a glass of milk. And Stop it. Like, Not even like a glass of soda, but a glass of milk. <laughs> it's like they were, they were that different. <laughs> so oh funny. God. Uh, okay. So Steven obviously was really, really struggling. Uh, with being single and not having any money. So here's where things start to get weird. On December 10th, 2009, Stephen inexplicably left St. George in the early morning hours, like 2.30 a.m. He leaves okay. and he, dri he drives his car, which was a Chevrolet Cavalier, if you were wondering. Oh my God, I have a picture in my head right now. <laughs> he drove... 300 miles north on I-15 to Salt Lake City, which is about four hours of a drive, where he bought some gas with a debit card. So that's how we know he was there. He then traveled west on I-80, another 125 miles to Wendover, Nevada, which is nearly two more hours. Isn't that where they have casinos, or am I getting that confused? Yes, they have casinos there. So, um, if you all didn't know, gambling is illegal in Utah. So when people want to gamble, they'll go to, obviously, you can go to Vegas. But Vegas is like a, you know, it's it's a further drive, maybe like six hours, five hours. But you can get to Wendover from Salt Lake City in like two. So if you want that's to That's what gamble, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's where he stops and he gets more gas. And then he continued another 100 miles to the Ruby Valley Ranch of the Neff family. So this was nearly another two more hours of driving. So he's been driving for a long time. That's he got, crazy. He got to Ruby Ranch at 2 o'clock p.m. Okay, okay, so he's I just, been driving for like 12 hours. Yes, yes. Good, 
<laughs> good catch there. I'm so I did math. I did. <laughs> I even did more math. So I added up all those miles. It takes eight hours to drive 525 miles. Even adding on like an hour for stops, that'd be nine hours. But it was 12 hours. So what was he doing for the other four hours? Where was he? What was he doing? We have no idea. That's really interesting. Okay. Okay. So at the Ruby Valley Ranch, like I said, the Neff family lived there. So Stephen had in the past dated a, a girl named Anne Marie Neff. She was the daughter of the people who owned Ruby Valley Ranch. But it was never serious. It was like very casual dating. It was only a couple of dates, actually. So Stephen shows up to the ranch unannounced. Like he had not called in advance, nothing. And he just told Anne-Marie's parents that he just thought he would stop in to just see how Anne-Marie was doing. What? Okay, that is so creepy. Um, yeah. And she, Anne-Marie wasn't there. She wasn't home. But the Neffs were like, well you drove all this way do you want some lunch so they made Stephen lunch very Mormon of them <laughs> so Mormon because I would be like um first of all what the fuck are you doing here yeah like, I'd be like you're creeping me out yeah <laughs> like you need to go I'm sure they were flabbergasted like what a weird thing imagine a guy who your daughter went on like three dates with years ago who lives eight hours away just, it was like, oh, hey, I just want to come see how she is. Yeah, like, that's so weird. Um, So Stephen told them that he was on his way to visit family in Sacramento, California, but he wasn't certain whether he could continue in that direction due to bad weather that was apparently going to happen. So okay. this is where I started to become a detective, you guys. So I pulled up maps. And I was like, okay, so he's supposedly driving to Sacramento, California to visit family. So I put in, you know, from St. George to Sacramento in no universe, in no way would you drive all the way up to Salt Lake City, then go to Wendover, then go to Sacramento there. It it wastes so much time doing that. Like you would go so many other routes to get to Sacramento from St. George. And also, I looked up the weather for that day. There were no storms, not even close. Like, it was cold, but... No storms. But also, it's interesting that he would go with that excuse with someone who, like, with a family who owns a ranch. Like, they know weather. You're going to check the weather every day. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And they were just like, huh. And also weird that he would tell them that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, And then the kicker, after I did all of that looking into it, the kicker that I found out later is that the koshers don't even have and never have had family that lives in Sacramento. Oh, so that's... We we full on know he was lying, and we don't know why. So, yeah. (laughs) So, um, he stays at the Neff's house at their ranch for two hours, eating the funeral potatoes or whatever he was doing god I'm and, funeral potatoes right now oh so good um then he left and obviously he didn't go to sacramento because he was never gonna do that he decided to return to saint george the same way he had come which was he drove back to wendover he drove back to salt lake city got more gas drove down to springville hi springville listeners <laughs> oh, hi springville 
And then he stopped and got dinner at Taco Time in Nephi. Taco Time in Nephi. (laughs) Which, oh, you guys, everything I listened to that even referenced Nephi, they said it Nephi. And I loved it so much because, you know, they're not Mormon. They don't know these weird names. (laughs) Nephi. That's so amazing. I've also heard that from non-Mormons. And as a Mormon, I remember thinking like, it's Nephi. But then you look at the word and you're like, yeah, I would pronounce that Nephi too if I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So by the time Stephen had returned home to St. George, he had driven over 1,100 miles in one day, all supposedly for a two-hour lunch with with some random people that you dated their daughter like three times. What? That sounds clear. Got some mileage that day. Tell you that. mm, mm, mm. (laughs) So, So during the day of this long drive, Stephen had talked with his mom on the phone. The two discussed the family's plans for Christmas. He said he was going to come visit them on December 23rd. They still lived in Bountiful. Okay. Um, And he was like, yeah, I'll for sure be there on the 23rd. Stephen's mom said he seemed upbeat and he was up. He was excited about the upcoming holiday and job prospects. But here's the weird thing. He didn't tell her anything about his road trip that day. Like, so he's like driving there on the phone with her and doesn't say like, hey, I'm on my way. Nope, Good. not a single word. Also, here's another really, really weird thing. He drove all that way. He was in Salt Lake City, but he didn't stop to see his family in Bountiful, which is an 18 minute drive. What? Like, why would you not make time to see your family? Especially like, I mean, maybe one could argue like, oh, maybe he doesn't have a good relationship with him, but he was on the phone with his mom that day. So yeah. and he has a, he had a great relationship with his family. Well, as far as we know, he talked to them often. Yeah. That's really weird. All right. So the next day, December eleventh, he's back in St. George. Um, while handing out flyers for his window cleaning employer, Stephen encountered two young girls who had accidentally been locked out of their family's apartment. So he let them use his cell phone to call their mother. And when she did not answer, he looked for someone in the neighborhood who could take them in temporarily until someone arrived who could let them in. So that's like so that's how we know for sure he was in St. George is because of this interaction. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay, the next day, December 12th, Stephen again hit the road. <laughs> that mm-hmm. morning around 9 a.m., his phone pinged a cell tower near Overton, Nevada at the north end of Lake Mead, which is an hour and a half away from St. George. And no one knows why he was there. Like, no, no one has any idea. Around 5 p.m., he bought gas and snacks at a convenience store in Mesquite, Nevada, which is just over the Arizona state line. Um, Again, yeah, why he even went to Nevada and Arizona or anywhere around there, there's like no one knows. There's no clues in his like phone or his web history or anything. At 8 p.m., Stephen was back in St. George at a Kmart where he bought a baby's bib and cookies, which are believed to be Christmas gifts for his brother's family. What? But also, another quick question I have would be, how can he afford the gas and, and all of this when he's, like, struggling so much? 
that's a very good question. I wondered that too. It's like you are struggling. You can't pay your car payments. You can't pay rent. How do you have gas money to drive all this way? Yeah. All right. And a neighbor of Stevens recalled seeing him return to his apartment around 10 p.m. So he was at Kmart at 8. And then, and that was in his hometown of St. George. And then two hours go by where no one knows what he was doing. And then he gets home at 10. And then a half an hour later at 1030, the same neighbor saw him leave again. Mm. It's unclear where he was after this until he got a call around 745 a.m. This was a Sunday morning. Okay. So we, yeah, his, this is from call records, and we, we know the person who called him. So the call came from Greg Webb, the elders quorum president, as the top. <laughs> <laughs> so at 7.45, Brother Webb called Stephen, <laughs> and, and Greg Webb was like, hey, I, I'm on my way back from Las Vegas. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to make it to St. George in time for the 11 a.m. like meeting. Do you think you could lead it instead and Stephen, oddly enough said oh I'm actually in Vegas too I can I can hurry back if you need me to and then Greg Webb was like oh no it's fine like I can just go back so what so he said he was in Vegas yeah how, so apparently how yeah, far so apparently, is Vegas from St. George two hours oh, okay right yeah okay so it's unclear if he came back home th that last night after he left at 1030 because no one saw him, there's no phone evidence of where he was. So he could have gone straight to Vegas. He could have gone home and slept and then gone to Vegas. But it is proven that he was in Vegas at 745 a.m. on Sunday. Oh, so he was. OK, he was. Yeah. Another ward member <laughs> called him at 1053 a.m with a request about adding some details to the ward announcements, but- And how Mormons and their no lives. Like. <laughs> I know. Oh. Um, but Stephen again said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in Vegas. I'm not gonna be at the meeting today. Uh, neither of the church members asked Stephen why he had gone to Vegas and no one knows what he was doing there. So he was just like, sorry, I can't, I'm in Vegas. And they're like, okay, cool, see you later. Oh. Um, okay. Weird, right? At 11.54 a.m., a home security camera on Savannah Springs Avenue in a retirement community in Henderson, Nevada, which Henderson, Nevada is a suburb of Vegas. It's, oh, that's right. It, yeah. yeah, it's like the suburbs of Vegas. And this community was a really upscale, like nice retirement 55 plus community. So in this um, community, there is a home security camera that recorded Stephen's car driving into a cul-de-sac. Six minutes later, exactly six minutes later, so right at noon, you see Stephen had gotten out of his car. He's wearing a white shirt and slacks, and he walks the opposite direction down the sidewalk, and he's carrying something in one of his hands that appears to be like a file folder or a portfolio or an envelope or something. I'm just caught up on the white shirt and white pants thing. Um, yeah, they're not white. They're, I think his slacks were like khaki, maybe. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so shortly after that, another security camera in a garage caught his reflection as he walked north, and Stephen has not been seen since. <gasps> what? That's the last 
So those phone calls, those two ward members who were the last people who talked to him, and then there, this footage in Henderson, Nevada, in a retirement community, is the last anyone's ever seen of him. Oh my God, that's so creepy. Yeah. <laughs> but his phone remained active. So that was at noon. At around 5 p.m. that day, his phone pinged a tower at the intersection of Arroyo Grande Boulevard and American Pacific Drive, which is more than 10 miles northeast of where he had parked. Two hours after that, it pinged another tower near Henderson's Whitney Ranch subdivision, which is two miles north of the previous ping. Um, and these pings were close enough in proximity that it's possible that, like, they could have, his phone could have been in one place and they could have just been pinging different towers. But either way, it had moved from his original location. <laughs> Early the next morning, his phone pinged a tower at the interchange between I-515 and U.S. Route 93, which is two miles more to the north. And then an hour later, his phone was used to check voicemail. Obviously, wow. no one knows if this checking the voicemail was placed by Steven or someone else because the mm -hmm. phone, yeah, the phone remained in that tower's vicinity for the next two days. Um, and that suggests that its battery died because there has been no activity since. Oh my God, this is so creepy. Like, I don't know <laughs> why I'm so creeped out right now. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, it gets weirder. A day after that last ping, the Retirement Community Homeowners Association Parking Enforcement took note of Steven's car at the end of the Savannah Springs cul-de-sac. So if you know HOAs, you know, like I live in a place that has an HOA and they just watch like fucking everything you do. And like, <laughs> they're like, you can't have that sign outside your house. <laughs> um, your, your grass is half an inch too tall. Um, no, but so yeah, his, his car was still there. His car had never moved. And the people in this retirement community were like, why is this car here? So they, um, they looked through the windows. They saw one of the flyers that Stephen had been distributing in St. George for the window washing company. Mm -hmm. And they called the number on it and they spoke to the owner of the company who then was like, oh, that maybe that's Stephen. That sounds like his car. So he gave them Stephen's cell phone number. Obviously, they didn't get through. They just left a voicemail. Later, they were able to contact his mom and they left her a voicemail. And she eventually returned their call on December 17th. And she realized that, like, oh, man, like, no one in the family has actually talked to Stephen in a week. And he's not answering his phone. So they reported him missing. They, yeah. Stephen's family drove south to start looking for him. And it was kind of interesting in some of the episodes. They were, his mother especially, was, like, quite appalled that he would even be in the Las Vegas area. She was like, oh, my <laughs> so alarming and so scary you know like he doesn't gamble he doesn't drink why would he be in this city of sin he doesn't even have friends here oh my um, god yeah okay so his family went around looking for him they went to jails morgues hospitals um they looked at his bank accounts which hadn't been touched since they you know he'd last been seen uh his mom went through his cell phone records was able to contact his church friends that he had told he was in vegas but no other contacts were in there. Um, and he obviously hadn't been trying to hide the fact that he was in Vegas because he'd told the people from church that's where he was. Um, mm -hmm. They check his room. So they drive, they obviously are, they check around Henderson and Vegas, but they also check in St. George. They check his room. 
which had all of his belongings still in it, including his laptop and his cell phone charger. There was nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing unusual was in his email about like meeting anyone. There was no Google searches about travel or flights or anything odd. It just all seemed normal. Then they um, they had spare keys to his car. So they go to the cul-de-sac where it was abandoned and they unlock it and look around inside. There's obviously the flyers. <laughs> they found, this part was funny to me, they found scripture audiobooks. <laughs> so he was like listening to the Book of Mormon on audiobook while he was driving around. <laughs> For 12 hours. Oh my God, Stephen. <laughs> um, there were blankets and pillows insinuating that he had slept in his car. They found those Christmas gifts for the family. And then they also found dozens of like copies of job applications. You know, he'd been trying to get a job. Um, his hey, car was working. It seem like it's intentional. Like this was his plan. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because his car also was working just fine and had a half tank of gas. So it wasn't like his car broke down either. And it was just in this like residential neighborhood just sitting there. Um. So at first, the police didn't take the disappearance seriously because like so, so, so many people go missing in Vegas. The, the number was crazy. I looked it up and it was something like six people per day go missing in Las Vegas. Oh, my God. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. And a, a lot of them end up getting like they're found later. They were usually just like partying and somewhere else. Um, yeah. Okay. So the police were like, oh, he's probably just out partying. He's probably at a hotel, just blowing off steam. But the family was like, no, like Stephen isn't a partier. He doesn't drink. He doesn't gamble. He's not going to go to strip clubs. Right. But the police were like, sure, he's not, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They're like, ma'am, come on. Let's be honest. Come on. He's a 30 year old man and he's single, you know. He's and he's probably a virgin. He's going to be going to a strip club. Let's yeah. Let's, let's be real. Um, but eventually, over a week later, Stephen's family convinced a local dairy to put Stephen's picture on a milk carton. So this lit a fire under the police's asses. They were like, oh, like, they're serious. They're, they, you know, he's been gone for over a week and now he's on a milk carton. So we'll help. So they start canvassing the houses in the neighborhood and they went through like the area extensively. They had so many volunteers. They used helicopters, altering vehicles, and sniffer dogs. They searched the area, including the desert terrain around the area, for four days. They found nothing. They found no one who had admitted to having a plan to meet Stephen. They didn't find anyone who had seen him. The only thing they found were those recordings of him from the from the um, surveillance cameras, but that was it. No one had at least admitted to seeing him in person. Yeah, and it's very, it's very weird. It was like he, and also in the in the video, you can find it online. But he's walking like with purpose. He's not scared. He's not um, he's not lost. He's walking as if he's going to a specific place, and he's holding something. Yeah, he's holding a folder or file, right? Yeah, he has something with him. Ooh. Um, and we know for sure he wasn't distributing flyers there because the window washing company didn't exist there. So. He wasn't doing that. Um, in April 2010, another party of searchers scoured the open desert south of the Henderson Executive Airport to the west of where Stephen had parked. And the, um, 
they've even hired a private investigator. A group of 70 covered about a mile stretch in two hours. They found bone fragments, but they were not human. And in 2015, a local search and rescue group organized another effort, this time going high up in the hills south of the retirement community, but they didn't find anything. There's been no, absolutely no sign of him ever since. Missing. All right, so now I wanna get into theories about what happened. So I'm going to tell you some of the most popular ones, and then I wanna hear what you think. So there's a few. Okay, so, I scrolled down too far. Here we go. Okay. So <laughs> Stephen's family believes, or some of them believe, that given his financial circumstances at the time, that he had gone to Henderson that morning for a job opportunity. Despite the odd location where he parked his car, on the video, the neatly dressed Stephen is walking purposely, suggesting he knew where he was going and what he was going there for. He doesn't look confused or dazed, Stephen brother Dallin said, Stephen's brother Dallin said in 2018. So to this I guess we can talk about it a little bit, but I, I find it odd that someone would go for a job interview on a Sunday at noon and that the job interview would be in a retirement community. Um, yeah, that's not adding up. Like on a Sunday, unless it was for the retirement center or community, like somehow working with sen like senior people, but yeah. senior citizens. I was like, well, sorry about senior citizens, but like... <laughs> Uh, but on a Sunday, I don't know. But also, like, why would that mean he, like, what what would lead him to disappear? Like, someone in that community killed him? Come on. Like, what? Right. And it's, yeah. And you would think that he would have something in his emails or on his phone, some kind of exchange about a job in, a job opportunity in Henderson. But they it kind of, it's given me, like, Breaking Bad slash Better Call Saul vibes. You know what I mean? Like, I Sarah, like you I, never, you never cease to amaze me because that theory is coming up pretty soon. <laughs> I think, yep, yes, you're onto something. You, you always are. You have that little detective brain. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh God, I should have been a detective. I should have. You should. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is a quote from the St. George police detective in 2018. Uh, the detective said, we know about as much now as we did the second we realized he was gone. So Stephen's difficulties notwithstanding, his family does not believe he chose to voluntarily disappear in order to escape them or take his own life. His mother said that in the, her last conversation with him on December 10th, he was optimistic about his ability to find another job. And of course, he was making plans for his Christmas visit home. And I mean, we all know that people can hide things and he was obviously being secretive with his mom about where he was going. And a lot of people have theorized that perhaps he was depressed because he was single and the pressure from the Mormon church was too much. Um, but from everything that we can tell, he did not seem depressed or suicidal. Um, mm -hmm. At least it doesn't seem like that to me, but of, of course, you never know. But I guess we can get into that theory later and talk about how that, I don't, I don't think that that tracks because I believe mm -hmm. that his body would have been found by now. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, if, if that were the case, then his body would have been found because yeah. he obviously wouldn't be alive to clean out himself. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, Stephen's mm -hmm. car and its contest also suggested that he returned. He intended to return to St. George because his father said that in the, the car was obviously in working order, like I said, and there were the Christmas presents, the job applications, um, 
and at his apartment everything was there so that there was another theory that like maybe he just wanted to leave and he was tired of his life and he wanted to go somewhere new and start a new life but all of his clothing and possessions were left behind and his passport was also found in his apartment which means mm. he couldn't have gone to another country no um, Stephen's unusual and mostly unexplained travel in the days leading up to his disappearance has led to the suppositions that he may have turned to some sort of illicit activity for income. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> a drug dog was taken to sniff over his car but did not alert anything. But I, I read, I was reading into this, and a, a lot of times these dogs don't detect prescription pills, which, uh... as we know, it's that's the Mormon drug of choice. Um, so let's see. Another uh, another vehicle seen on the security camera footage driving up and down the street around the time Stephen parked and walked away from his car was investigated, but it turned out to be a local real estate agent showing a house in the area. So that wasn't anything. Um, so let's see. Yeah, like I said, his the search of his computer and internet browsing history found nothing unusual. They even checked his browsing and borrowing history at the St. George Library to find if there was anything weird there. They looked at his diary, couldn't find anything. So this made me think, I wonder if he had a burner phone. That's, because- I was thinking that like earlier when you were talking about how they hadn't seen or like there was no activity on his phone or anything in his browser history or anything. And I was like, I bet he had to have a burner phone. Yep. that That's sort of where I'm leaning because it's like, how do you even, it, he was obviously going somewhere. And so if it's not in his phone and, and a lot of places I looked at said that his, his computer was like oddly clean and his web history yeah. was, odd. it was like, he didn't even use it. He was using something else. Yeah. He must've had a burner phone and a burner laptop because also if he were going to like job interviews or whatever reasons he's saying, they would find that in his phone history or. Yeah, there'd be more. Exactly. Exactly. So, and here's a part that I just wanted to throw out there. Cause I was like, eye rolling at it. Um, apparently some of his family members don't think that his travel is particularly unusual. His mom said that one of his reasons for moving to St. George was to research family history in that area and that he often went on tours of cemeteries looking for ancestors' graves. Stephen's mother believes the trips were just his way of keeping himself busy despite his underemployment. And I think it was, I think it's strange. I think, like you said before, if you don't have income, you're not driving that much. No, you're not going to waste gas money. If you can't afford your rent or your electricity or anything like that, like you're not going, your car payments, I mean, your car payments, like you're not going to just go for a joy ride for 12 hours and waste gas money. And there's no evidence that he was even like at any cemeteries or, or research facilities looking up his ancestors. It's like, I think his poor mother is probably just trying to put something on it that doesn't seem sketchy because if I, you know, it'd be hard to imagine that your son might be involved in something sketchy. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, I bet that's her way of, like, consoling herself, you know, and just, like, making herself think that, like, yeah, he's not doing anything sketchy. Yeah. Okay, so now here's a theory that is absolute horseshit, but I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to share it with you because it's very interesting. It's per, 
pertinent to our angle and we've covered this um, other other story on the podcast before, so I wanted to share it with you. So there's a theory that connects Stephen's disappearance to the disappearance of Susan Powell. Oh, that thought ran through my head too. Yeah. So not that they were like connected as in like they literally were connected, but I was just thinking like, oh, kind of reminds me when he was like gets up in the middle of the night and was like, I'm gonna go camping in horrible weather and that's normal. Yeah. Listeners, um, if you haven't, go back and listen to our episode about the, the Powell family. Um, it's really sad, trigger warning, but um, it's really fascinating. And it happened at nearly the same time. It was in December 2009. Um, and both of these people are Mormon, obviously. So just as a small recap, Stephen disappeared a week after Susan Powell was reported missing from her home in Salt Lake, in the Salt Lake City suburb of West Valley City. The cases happened around the same time, and they were both Mormon. Susan's case received much more media attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so a suspicion centered on her husband, Josh, blah, blah, blah. He's shit. So we all, we all kind of know that story, right? Like, she disappeared. He was like, oh, well, she just probably left, and I don't know where she is, but she'll come back, was essentially what he was saying. Mm-hmm. So early into this investigation I don't know if you remember this but Josh's family began making allegations publicly claiming that Susan had framed her husband for murder and had actually gone and eloped with Stephen Kosher (gasps) that's right now that's why his name sounds familiar because when he said I was like I've never heard of him but then I started thinking like I feel like I've seen this on, on in writing. Why have I seen Stephen Kosher in writing? Yeah. Yep. Hey. Um, his Josh Powell and his father, who was a terrible person as well, they put these allegations online in the news. They were like, well, she's just, you know, she's just a slut and she's just gone off and married this other guy and she just wants to disappear and leave her family. And that's just... Um, I I hate it makes my blood boil because they were using this tr- as an excuse trying to be like oh look this is the perfect opportunity say she disappeared with him when in reality we all know that Josh killed her that's so, so disgusting yeah so that's the theory that I wanted to touch on but we know it's a bunch of crap so here's the last theory and the one that I think is perhaps the most interesting and um, okay. I'll give you just a little bit of a little bit of background here. <laughs> so this was this was kind of harder to dig into because I couldn't find a ton of information about it. Um, but I did find a couple of sources. Again, this is all allegedly, so don't sue me. Everyone, did you hear that? <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> so foul play seems highly likely. In December 2020, police released close to 200 pages of documents pertaining to the case, providing a small glimpse of what went on behind the scenes in the earliest days of the investigation. Although the surveillance footage doesn't show which house Stephen actually entered, police seemed to focus on one house in particular and made numerous attempts to speak with the people who lived there. At least one neighbor noticed suspicious, noted suspicious activity at this particular house on the day Stephen went missing, and the occupants moved away shortly afterwards. It's possible they had a hand in Stephen's disappearance, though police have never named any suspects. When, so here's an interesting 
interesting part of that. When parking Stephen's car, it looked kind of random because he didn't park super close to the curb and it wasn't parallel to the curb. It was just kind of like in this somewhat abandoned area of the cul-de-sac. So he wasn't he wasn't parked, obviously, in front of the house he was going to. And it obviously also means that he didn't mean to be long. He was probably delivering something. And it's like he he parked away from where he was delivering the thing, even though you could have just pulled into the person's driveway, which is mm. suspicious. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now here's where, remember I told you his landlord's name was Brett Bishop? Mm-hmm. This is where um, this theory kind of comes from. So suppose, yeah, so Stephen's behind on rent, and suppose he gets roped into doing some kind of deliveries for his landlord, Brett Bishop, in order to mitigate his back-owed rent. So Brett Bishop, when you look into him, is pretty sketchy. Ooh. He had, so he lives, he had the a property in St. George. And then he also has a property that he lives in with his wife in Orem, Utah, which is where I'm from. And I found his address online. I Googled it and it is literally three minutes away from where I grew up. Where oh my God, so creepy. Yeah. So he, um, he had some really sketchy activity in the past where he was connected to a stolen car and he was it was actually a car that was stolen from Henderson, Nevada, and it was a Porsche and it was just in his garage. And when the police went and found it, they found all of these um, materials for growing weed. And they also found a bunch of prescription pills that were not in his name, like tons and tons and tons of them. So oh, he, did okay. some, he did some jail time for that, but he still at the point when he was he he'd completed his jail time when he was. Stephen's landlord but the theory is that maybe they'd worked out some sort of deal where to um, help with not being able to pay rent Stephen started doing deliveries for Brett Bishop Mm -hmm. Um, the theory is that he does his first delivery when he claims he's driving to Sacramento he was he never actually was going to Sacramento but needed an excuse and so his excuse was oh I'm gonna go pretend to go see my ex-girlfriend, but really he was just doing some sort of delivery. Um, And that might explain why there are gaps in the timeline when he's driving all over the place. And it also might explain why he wasn't concerned about spending all that gas money when he owed rent, because maybe he was getting cash. Um, So there's there's a theory that his last delivery was in that Henderson retirement neighborhood to a man named Mark DiMaggio. He was the son of a couple who lived in the retirement neighborhood, and they the couple had just moved out right before Stephen showed up, but their son was still living in the casita behind the house. And this is the house that the neighbor had said was suspicious. <laughs> um, okay. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so suppose Mark tells Stephen, don't park in my driveway. I don't want to draw attention to my house. Park at the cul-de-sac. Come bring me the whatever he's delivering, which I'm going to say maybe allegedly was drugs. and suppose something went wrong maybe Stephen walked in on something he shouldn't have or who knows what and maybe Stephen gets killed and there's another sketchy thing about Mark he had multiple properties and he is the one who was avoiding talking to police they had to like go back to him 
I, I can't even remember how many times it was. It was like 10 or more times trying to talk to him. And they were asking him where his second address was. And he wouldn't tell the police where his second address was because he said he was too worried about like the gangs and drug activity that he literally wouldn't tell anyone where his other house was. And by the, t- by the time they even talked to him, it was months later. So I feel like he could have had time to get rid of Stephen's body if that was the case. Um, yeah, so that-, that one sounds definitely like it's the most accurate one. Like, I wonder what was in that, like, file or folder that he's carrying, if it was just uh, how big. That's was what it? I wonder. That's what I wonder. It, I mean, it looked, if you look at the video, it's it's not super clear, but it does look kind of like a, it could be a manila envelope, maybe the size of a piece of paper or slightly smaller which could definitely have drugs in it um, or other illegal materials. And part of me wonders, like, maybe Stephen didn't even know what was in it. He just knew he had to deliver something. But also he was very secretive about where he was going. He didn't tell his family. So I don't know. I wonder, yeah, if he just, like, witnessed something wrong or maybe, like, saw something and they were willing to be like, yeah, that's just part of it. Maybe he said something like, this is wrong or I don't know. Yeah. Or realize what was in the envelope or something, or I don't know. And another point is that in all of his travels, he was that, that one day when he traveled over 1100 miles, he was driving past where Brett Bishop lived. And we know that he had been dealing with illegal prescription drugs. He could have been picking things up from there. Uh, We don't know because we don't know what he was doing in all that unaccounted for time. So there's a lot of theories when you like look at especially Reddit and other forums about this. A lot of people think that he would just wanted to disappear, that like he wanted a new life and he just left. Some people think that it was suicide. Some people think that he just wanted to live on the fringe of society and live on the streets of Vegas. Um, I tend to lean towards he was involved in something that was sketchy and illegal and something happened to him. And it's it, it's really sad that they, they can't find him, that the police don't know what happened to him. Yeah, like it totally gives me two. So it gives me, like I said, like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul vibes, but for two possible scenarios. So I think the first being the the last theory that you talked about, that. He got involved in some illegal activity and that would explain his like driving and connection with his landlord and also like, yeah, maybe he just walked in and saw something that he shouldn't see or threatened to tell police because, you know, he was a Mormon. So maybe he thought it was just like, you know, maybe he was naive enough to think that he was just doing a favor for his landlord for money, but didn't realize it was illegal or as extreme as he thought it was. So maybe he said like, right, okay, I don't agree with this. And right. I went to the police and they were like, okay, well, you're gone. So I think it definitely, I'm leaning mostly towards that one. But then the other one is it kind of makes me think that like, because he was in so much financial distress and struggles and stuff like that, and just wanted a clean slate that like he basically started a new identity. Yeah. I mean, like went to the vacuum store, like in Breaking Bad. It was just like, <laughs> right, I need this one item. 
But then the only problem with that one is you would need a ton of money. And we know that he didn't have that money. Right. That's where I'm like, where's the, where would he get the money to do that and hide from everyone who's looking for him? Yeah, exactly. Um, what do you think about the cell phone thing? That one's interesting. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that, like, if, if again, it's the second one that I'm saying that he got a new identity or whatever, it's kind of like, you know, again, I'm referencing everything like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, <laughs> where it's like they drove him to a certain point and then that's where he switches and goes with someone else, like to a new location. So maybe oh, yeah. drive to that one point, which is where the last place that his phone was picked up by towers and then he leaves or it's like whoever, if he did, you know, become harmed or like, yeah, basically is killed. Then maybe the person who did it just forgot to disable the phone or something before traveling to dispose of the body. Right. Because one thing I got a little hung up on is like, if he had gone to Vegas and was in so much despair and just wanted to have a new life because of all of his troubles, like it confused me as to why he would answer the phone call from his, his board members and tell them he was in Vegas. Like if I wanted to disappear, I probably wouldn't answer the phone. Or if I did, I might lie and tell them I was somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like it, you would at least lie like okay maybe you pick up the phone because you want to keep the story or keep people from like wondering where you are and if you're missing or whatever but then lie like say oh I'm on a flight to I don't know Europe for three weeks and then right that That would buy you time yeah Yeah. but he had yeah it it was all so strange and then yeah the, the phone being moved I think does make sense if maybe he had um, been murdered and his phone was in his pocket and then they just didn't think to turn it off like you said maybe in his delivery something happened or he saw something that yeah he shouldn't have I don't know what that is but that also makes me very frustrated with the police because like it took them so long to interview that guy and I still don't even know if they've even tried to do any forensic investigation inside that house you would think that there would be, if he had come into harm's way in that house, there should be some like forensic evidence of it. But then again, they had waited so many months, maybe it had been professionally professionally cleaned and they couldn't find anything. I think that's a problem. I think if they would have immediately asked to to like, or to interview this person and then said, oh, we want to have a warrant to go and look inside the house, blah, 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 and then done some forensic work in there they could have found something but to wait months later you're not gonna find by that time they definitely have had the place cleaned it's yeah yeah it it sounds like you know it wasn't just an amateur scheme that they had running like it seems like if that guy was so worried about people finding out where he lives or whatever then it's probably a pretty legit illegal business where they know what they're doing right and I, so I want the police to look more into that guy and I want them to look more into Brett Bishop because if there's, maybe there's a connection between Brett Bishop and Mark DiMaggio. And I think that would be a strong connection enough to like investigate further. Yeah. So that's, that's the story. I, uh, 
Stephen Kosher was 30 years old when he went missing in 2009. He has blonde hair and blue eyes, and at the time of his disappearance, he was 5 feet 10 inches tall and weighed 180 pounds. He has a birthmark on his abdomen and a surgical scar behind each ear. Uh, when last seen, he was wearing a white button-down shirt, uh, dockers, and white sneakers. If you have any information about Stephen, please contact the St. George Police Department at 435-627-4300. And that's the story of Stephen Kosher. And wow. his body is still not found. And it's so wild to me. The only thing that can make sense is some kind of sketchy drug thing because I feel like if any other scenario he probably would have been found unless he's very good at um making a new life and hiding yeah but he just needs the money like that's where I'm I would be convinced of that one if he had a lot of money but like the yeah. fact he was struggling so much but maybe that was like his um not alibi but like intentional to come across as if he was financially struggling so that people would be like oh well he couldn't afford to buy a new identity right I am um, I, I was talking to my boyfriend about this because I was so baffled by it and and to be honest I hadn't come across that last theory until much later on a lot of the podcasts only cover the first part and they don't cover the the drug delivery theory basically at all so I was talking to Scott about this and he was like, because I was stuck on the money thing too. Like, how would he be able to to start a new life without money? And he was saying, well, maybe he had money in those places that he was driving or doing something, uh, doing something to get cash from people also could possibly have been illegal, but was somehow getting cash and then was stowing it away. Um yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh my god! Or maybe he knew that that ranch they had money. <gasps> I didn't even think about that. Yeah, like maybe. maybe when he was dating her, he found out that like oh they stored some money somewhere, so he went and grabbed that money, but pretended like oh I just wanted to have lunch with you guys and catch up. I just wanted to have lunch and go to Sacramento. Jk, <laughs> thanks for the funeral potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, listeners, I'd love, yeah, I'd love to know what you listeners think. What are your theories? And if any of you knew this family, um, if you have any more insight, if I got anything wrong, please correct me. I find this so interesting and my brain has been hurting from it for the past week because I can't stop thinking about it. I can't either because it's just so like... Uh, it's such a mystery like at least with you know other unsolved mysteries like you, there's some there's some little bit of explanation or like connection where you'd be like oh okay like maybe it's this but I feel like with this story it's just kind of like it almost feels random mm-hmm. but you know that obviously that's not the case but it's just like what yeah what? something obviously happened but it it just looks like he vanished into thin air this is wild. I'm going to be thinking about it all night. And also, for some reason, I'm, like, totally creeped out. So I'm going to be scared. <laughs> Don't be scared. I'm such a scared cat. Katie knows. If I watch anything, we were just talking about, like, the 
John Wayne Gacy podcast, or well, also the podcast for the thing on Netflix, and that shit had me so spooked out. So creepy. Oh, I hate it. I hate it, but I, I mean, I am very interested in watching it, but, but damn, that man was a monster, for sure. Horrible. So this kind of stuff, like, even though we don't know what happened to Stephen Kosher, but it's still, like, it's just creepy. It's like, mm-hmm. what did happen? How did this man disappear? And why? And, uh yeah. Any way you slice it kind of creeps me out because yeah. there was so much secrecy and things that can't be explained. And I, I hope that there are answers sometime because his family deserves that. Yeah. I can't imagine not knowing what happened to my loved one and then learning later that they were doing things and not telling you and you have no explanation. Oh, and it's just like you have no closure, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you all listeners for coming on this journey with us. We love you guys so much. We do. And stay safe. Please do not go on random road trips and stop by ranches. Okay. Or senior citizen communities. (laughs) Like don't do it. Share your location with your trusted loved ones all the time. Believe me. Um, wow. Okay. That was really good. I'm going to be like sitting on my couch, just thinking about it for the next hour. So thank you. And (laughs) hope you guys have a good week. Bye. 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 Bye.